Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of the Road to Indy Insider. My name is Rob Howden, the voice of the Road to Indy presented by Cooper Tires. And today we break down the event at Worldwide Technology Raceway. The Road to Indy teams in the Indy Lights and Indy Pro 2000 uh, categories heading to the 1.25-mile oval, a very interesting track at Gateway, as I said, now named Worldwide Technology Raceway. Turn one and two, a lot tighter than turns three and four, a unique racetrack that requires a certain driving style. Drivers are actually shifting gears, also working on the setup and the aero downforce. Uh, we saw a little bit of aero differences in terms of Oliver Askew and Renus VK and Indy Lights. We saw a tremendous battle, a run from the tail of the field for Kyle Kirkwood to come up to uh, grab a victory in Indy Pro 2000. The bottom line is just a really tremendous weekend, the second oval for both of the categories. Indy Lights drivers, of course, in May at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway racing at the Freedom 100. Uh, Oliver Askew scoring the victory there. And then as well for Indy Pro 2000 running at the Carb Night Classic at Lucas Oil Raceway. That was the Freedom 90. Daniel Frost putting that victory on the books for exclusive autosports. And of course, Frost coming in trying to do the double, as did uh, Oliver Askew. To kind of set the stage here for this breakdown podcast on the Road to Indy Insider, Really nice weather. Anytime you kind of roll into that area of the U.S. Uh, in the middle of middle to late August, there's a potential for high temperatures. And we've had that in the past. Very high temps. And, of course, IndyCar running that night race cools off a little bit. Uh, not so much for the drivers in Indy Lights and Indy Pro 2000. They're kind of more right in the early to late afternoon. And it gets pretty warm. Uh, luckily, though, this particular trip, not like last year when we were in the mid-90s, Temperatures were really mid-80s. In fact, on Saturday, actually more like in the mid-70s. So the, the temperatures were absolutely perfect. Beautiful weather for the race fans as well. And as you've probably seen on social media, or if you watch the race or, or listen to it on the IndyCar Radio Network, the place was packed. It was uh, another increase in terms of people coming out. They'd opened up actually part of the Turn 1 grandstand for a, a big corporate buy of tickets. The place was packed. And as we were trying to work around, it was absolutely nuts. Uh, and that's just great for this particular program. Uh, the event at Worldwide Technology Raceway just seems to have so much momentum. Chris Blair and his crew, the promotional team there, along with the Bomberito Automotive Group, have done just so many great things in terms of activating that event within the St. Louis area. And I think uh, we're going to see more progress and even more people coming Recent news that I believe the NASCAR Truck Series is actually going to be running next year in replacing the K&N Series that was running this past weekend. So bring in the trucks, and you're probably going to bring in some more NASCAR fans as well. So I got to think that, that event is just going to get even bigger and bigger as we move to the 2020 season. So here we are into one of the Road to Indy Insiders, episode 23. I'm going to start talking about Indy Pro 2000. We'll begin with that category, and then I'm going to bring my cohort from the IndyCar Radio Network Nick Yeoman, the anchor of the Indy Lights broadcast, he's going to come in and join us on the second half of this broadcast to kind of break down what we saw in Indy Lights and maybe do a little bit of a light preview uh, about the Portland Grand Prix, which is coming up this weekend. I do want to thank everyone for tuning in and, and downloading the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, a lot of great excitement. A lot of, you know, we're getting some really cool fans who are understanding that watching the road to Indy presented by Cooper Tires is a chance to watch the future stars of the NTT IndyCar Series. You can get to know an Oliver Askew, a Kyle Kirkwood, a Rasmuth Lint, even further down to a Braden Eves, a Darren Keene, 
uh, Hunter McElroy, some of those drivers you're seeing in USF 2000. Just a great opportunity to see these kids before they work their way into IndyCar. All right, let's let's jump into my breakdown of the Indy Pro 2000 race uh, from, from Gateway, from Worldwide Technology Raceway. As we do with these insiders, kind of a little bit of a breakdown. We, we kind of do a synopsis of the race. I'll do the same thing with Nick Yeoman later on in the show. And then I'll hit on a couple of topics I thought were big from the race. So qualifying, Rasmuth Link comes out, puts the car on the pole. N- worthy of noting, Kyle Kirkwood for RP Motorsports Racing qualifies P2, but the team did not know that they weren't allowed to work on the car while they were waiting on the grid for qualifying. Ideally, or the concept is you roll the, you get your car set up, you roll out, and that's the car you have. So if you have two or three cars in the grid, you, one guy can't go out and say, hey, here's what's going on, make an adjustment to the car. So everybody is such a level playing field. You can't make changes to your wing package or whatever it may be based on input from a driver further up in the order. Kyle Kirkwood, who I believe rolled off, I think he rolled off second last, um, made, they made a change to the wing. Right in front of the the, uh, the road to India, tech inspectors and the staff, they saw it. His times were disallowed. He had actually qualified second, Kyle Kirkwood did, but dropping to the tail of the field had to start 12th. I would have said that could be a big, uh, maybe a big change in the championship uh, storyline, knowing that if it went green to checker over 55 laps, Kyle may not have been able to get to the front, but the chaos uh, over the opening couple of laps uh, and f- three, four wide racing allowed him to do so. I actually didn't call it. If you watch it on the road to Indy TV broadcast, I had done the, the uh, driver pre-race, all the intros on pit lane, hopped in my golf cart and had to drive all the way around underneath the tunnel over to the tower and then run up the stairs. I was out of breath once, once I got there, but I missed the first four laps. So essentially I missed calling the, the action Jim Childers and the crew up there did an excellent job. And uh, and by the time I got to the top, I put the headset on, and it was that lap where Kyle Kirkwood was making things happen. So again, Rasmuth Lint leads from the green. Crazy action, as I said, over the opening couple of laps. Two of the drivers really making things happen, pressing the issue were the D-Force drivers, uh, Moises De La Vera and Corey Enders. Enders had qualified Third, moves to the off-pole position after the issue with uh, the DQ for Kirkwood. And both of those drivers were unbelievably fast. We'll come back in a second and talk about Kirkwood coming to the front. But over the first four laps, Delavera and Enders were all over Rasmuth Lent. It was uh, impressive. Eventually, they were able to get by, and it was a DE Force 1-2 for a number of laps. At the start, let's give a little look at Cal Kirkwood. A little more tentative on the opening one-two, which I, I I thought was a great call. In fact, the opening corner, opening lap, he only gets two spots. But away he goes. By lap number two, he's up to eighth position. By lap three, a three-wide battle in front of him, and he's running there in sixth, kind of watching what's happening, and was able to take advantage of it, get to the bottom of the racetrack. Everybody else kind of goes wide. To start lap number four, he's already P3, and closing up on both the D-Force cars. It was just, it was, it was unbelievable. Kirkwood goes to the inside of Delavera, And as we talk about the way the race and the track kind of played out, you'll hear the bottom line wasn't the best. It was that second groove really that I think was better for the cars. Obviously, you're not having to feed a lot of wheel into it. 
you're not pinching the car down. You're let, letting the car be free coming off each of the corners off of two and four. But at the very start on cold tires, everybody kind of jostling for position. Kirkwood was able to get to the inside of Delavera and essentially held that spot. This is the, the pass for the lead. Essentially two laps side by side, Kirkwood finally able to get by going into turn one. And I believe that was on, I think lap number eight or lap number nine from there. Kirkwood simply checks out as the leader, never really challenged uh, from then on. The battle then turns back to P2. We're watching this fight for second. Now, to be t- to be honest, really good battles all the way through the field. We saw a number of different fights. Stingray Rob and Artem Petrov were, were battling it out for a while. Kyle Kirkwood came up into there. Daniel Frost was a guy we saw moving forward, continuing to pl- kind of plot his way forward. The last 20 laps really was where things got exciting. But Corey Enders having his, I believe, a career race for him. A, a strong podium finish last year in Portland uh, in USF 2000, but really strong here on the Oval at uh, at Worldwide Technology Raceway. He works hard in his teammate, De La Vera, and you're always got to be a little, maybe a little more cautious, right? Passing your teammate. Uh, finally able to get by De La Vera on lap number 20, did Corey Enders. And from there, actually started to reel in Kyle Kirkwood. I was watching the splits like crazy. At one point, it was, I think, almost two seconds. He actually worked it down to six-tenths of a second at one point. And I, and I had thought that maybe Kirkwood was, you know, obviously he's getting the split called in from the radio. And I kind of figured, you know, Kyle's a veteran driver. As we know, reset the single-season win record in USF 2000 last year. He's won a number of races this year. Was six, what, six of seven or five of six coming in to this race at Gateway. I figured for sure he was kind of managing the gap, you know, just taking it easy a little bit. But I talked to Kyle afterwards, and he said no. He said every lap he was hanging it out, pushing as hard as he could. So that puts the, the kudos over to Enders, who actually closed down to, the, to within six-tenths of a second at one point. Final 20 laps is when things start getting get pretty interesting. Rasmuth Lint goes to work on De La Vera, and it was this battle between Rasmuth Lint and Moises Delavere for third, which would eventually, I think, more set the storyline after the incident that, that ended up happening. Lint's pushing Delavere everywhere, trying the inside line, you know, diving into three, Delavere holding the top. Uh, a tr- couple couple runs potentially on the outside for Lint didn't stick. It was on lap number 40 when everything kind of kind of turned. Rasmuth got a really good run out of turn number two, working the high side, went to the outside of Delavere, whose car might have been starting to go off a little bit. He gets enough of a run up in that second groove, which I said was good, and he had kind of cleared, almost cleared De La Vera as they're getting ready to you know, point the cars into the apex of three. And at this point, essentially what happens is De La Vera is down to the bottom of the track, doesn't want to give up the, the corner, and maybe trying to see if he can't roll the bottom still. And we got three looks on the replay in the call that we had on the Road to Indy TV coverage. And as Moises drops the car down to the inside, you could see the rear end just as he as he points it down, the rear end got light. He countersteers, and the car, car kind of just pushes up a little bit. Obviously, the countersteer, he brings it back out when he saved it, but by that point, he's not turning into the corner. Car lightly moves up, maybe a foot or so. Right front contact from De La Vera to the left rear of Lent, and at that point, the car... Loses control and really De La Vera just a passenger at that point. Car rotates uh, counterclockwise 180 degrees and he backs it up into the safety, safety barrier between turns three and four. Hard impact for De La Vera. Luckily, the car comes to a stop. 
AMR safety crew gets there very quickly. He unbuckles, he's out of the car, which, you know, we all breathe a collective sigh of relief. The second, the second issue for me was the fact that Antoine Camo, who's having such a tremendous run, actually got by Lint at one point. Uh, Antoine Camo for turn three motorsports actually into fourth at one point. Running there, I believe, in the fifth or sixth spot. Of that, I think it's fifth at that point. As he's coming through, Delavera makes the contact. Rear wing, of course, off after the contact with the safer barrier. But that rear wing riding right up the cowl over the shock cover. And I don't think it made contact with Antoine's helmet. I haven't talked to Peter Dempsey yet from turn three. Haven't talked to Antoine Camo. I will for sure this weekend in Portland. But regardless, right up over top and makes some pretty severe contact with the car itself. Bends the toe link, the right front toe link on the car of Camo, which sends him back in the field, which is tough because he was having a good run. But that was really the way things changed. Now, the crazy part of this is AMR safety crew does an awesome job. They get things cleaned up. Moises out of the car, walks over to the safety car, which again, awesome to see, but a uh, tough one for him. He really was having a good run potential, top three, top four finish. But what this sets up is a final seven lap dash. 55 lap race, all comes down to the final seven laps. Kirkwood, to his credit, really strong out of the gate, able to pull away a little bit, build enough of a gap that Enders really had to push hard, and he did. Enders pushed super hard, and at one point, got a little high coming out of turn number four, and that allowed Lint to close back up. Enders holding back Lint for the last couple of laps, but on the final circuit, and I'm kind of surprised Corey went down to the bottom. Knowing how good the top of the, the track was, I was surprised Corey on the final circuit, final run down the back straightaway, took such a defensive line to the inside. I thought maybe running the top line might have been better, just knowing you'd get a better run out. Instead, he goes to the bottom. It's uh, Lint to the top. A really good run into turn number three for, for Rasmus Lint. They're side by side all the way around three and four. And with that top line holding Enders down, Lint able to get a better run. He, in fact, fully clears Enders by the time they get to the start-finish line. So Kirkwood with the victory by about eight-tenths of a second. Rasmus Lint comes in second. Corey Enders a strong run, his second podium in his, in his road to Indy career in third. Daniel Frost starts seventh, and a really good run for Daniel, although not what he would have wanted. Coming off that Freedom 90 win uh, at the Carb Night Classic in May, he's thinking he's going to get a, a race win here, at least battle for the race win. Starts seventh, ends up fourth, still a good run for, for, for Daniel. And Stingray Rob, who ran, I think ran his lowest tenth at one point, able to capitalize on that yellow flag late and works his way up into fifth. Parker Thompson, sixth from ninth. Artem Petrov, seventh, not a, a great result, but his pace for a young Russian driver who's never run an oval, I thought he was impressive. Nikita Lastoskin ends up in, in the eighth spot, and Antoine Camo in ninth. Uh, final driver on the racetrack, Charles Finelli in 10th. One of the storylines certainly to watch for was the fact that Rasmuth Lint, I think what was really interesting was the fact that the, where he was point wise so many times, because of course we're watching the point standings as the drivers run on track. He's starting pole with his primary challenger. Now Kyle Kirkwood starting 12th. Rasmus is thinking, I got a chance to extend my point lead. This is great. But as things, you know, after four laps, Kyle's P1, Rasmus down to fifth at one point. There was a time where he had lost the lead by three or four points. As he kind of worked his way back forward, he gains points back. And with that final lap pass, actually really saved himself, I think. He's six points back 
of Kyle Kirkwood in the championship battle. We'll talk more about that when we cap off this Indy Pro 2000 segment of the Road to Indy Insider breakdown. But that was that was a storyline we were watching. Where was that point battle based on where guys ran on the racetrack? And it's uh, with four races to go, it's going to be incredibly exciting. A couple of my breakdown points as we look at this. Number one, Kyle Kirkwood. He was an absolute astonishment when we talked to him afterwards. He actually joined Nick Yeoman on the IndyCar Radio Network to help do some driver analyst work for the Indy Lights race. But Kyle just couldn't believe it. He just couldn't believe how things developed on the opening couple of laps. All it would have taken were was everybody to kind of settle in and go single file early. And I think that Kyle would have struggled maybe to get to the point. But because it was two, three, four wide racing at a time, he was able to run that top groove and work forward and then move to the bottom groove to get by De La Vera for the lead. So I think just the way that race immediately started to unfold, it played right into the hands of Kyle Kirkwood. And he used all his experience to fully capitalize. Corey Enders, fantastic weekend for Corey Enders. You, you got to give it up. He was actually my star of the race. Uh, I thought he did a, just a tremendous job. P1 in practice. Uh, he and De La Vera both very quick. They wanted more in qualifying. He was not happy with the setup that they rolled onto the car for qualifying. He ends up P3. I think he would have liked P1. But with the DQ to Kirk, when he does move to the outside of the front row and, and indeed was a, a factor in the race all race long. Could have finished second, I think. Had he not run that defensive line into three, I think Corey would have probably finished P2. But instead, still third. Nonetheless, a great run for Corey Enders. Great uh, result for D-Force Racing, which gives them a lot of promise looking at 2020 in terms of how their oval setup will be. And, and Corey's going to take a lot of momentum into Portland, where he was a podium finisher last year in USF 2000. I'd mentioned Daniel Frost. I thought that was a really good recovery for him as well. Daniel's looking for race wins, right? He's got one at the at Lucas Oil Raceway on the Oval. He was one of the dominant drivers on the streets of Toronto as well, was able to get a victory there. So in his mindset, the expectations have all changed. But I have to feel that you, if I were talking to Daniel, I'd say, listen, take a deep breath. You don't have a lot of seat time in this series. He only ran three races last year with exclusive Autosport in USF 2000. They were three great races, but mid-season events uh, where he just doesn't have the seat time. This is the first year in, in, in the Indy Pro 2000 class, and he doesn't even have a full USF 2000 series under his belt. So I thought that Frost did tremendously well starting seventh and, and really getting racy, working his way forward. There was a time I thought he was going to go to P3. I thought somehow Daniel was going to find his way onto the podium. Not quite, uh, but very close. Overall, what I liked from the race and what I liked from Gateway, anytime you go to an oval, you're worried about, about, about passing. We know that. Uh, especially with the road to Indy teams. Lucas Oil Raceway, you run around the top of that racetrack. You have to be able to have a good card go to the bottom, number one, to pass, and number two, to potentially work through lap traffic, which we always get at Lucas Oil Raceway. It's only five-eighths of a mile. Same goes for Gateway. It's a fast racetrack, though. It's a mile and a quarter. And, of course, drivers have to do a little bit of shifting, and it, it's a tougher. It's such a tough racetrack. So, to have a car that works on the bottom, works on the top, that's what you've got to have. But the second groove was so good. We saw passes on the second groove. We saw it being so good that even if you had a good move to the inside, there were guys that made moves all the way to the inside. You figured the pass was done, but it wasn't. Daniel, I think Daniel Frost, I want to say he was almost by Rasmus Lynn at one point. It, he was all the way by him on the inside of turn number one over into two, and Rasmus just ran the top line. So... 
the second groove, I think, was one of the big storylines, and it obviously played well for the IndyCar guys as well. There was no third groove. You got a little too high, and you were into the marbles. You were done. But that second groove, I think, because it was so good, really played into the storyline of what we saw in Indy Pro 2000. Same goes, of course, uh, for Indy Lights. We'll talk more about that with Nick Yeoman in a few minutes. My final cap, and what I love to see in the entire road to Indy, is any kind of parody. We have so many good race teams. At one point, there were five different teams running in the top five late in that race for Indy Pro 2000 when you threw Antoine Camo in turn three in there. But when we were all said and done, it's Kyle Kirkwood for RP Motorsport on top, Rasmus Lent with Hunkos Racing P2, Corey Anders and D-Force Racing P3, and Daniel Frost in Exclusive Auto Sports P4. Four different teams in the top four. I thought that was uh, was absolutely tremendous for, for the drivers in Indy Pro 2000. It's just for me... I just think it's such a cool cool thing to see that many teams looking good. All right, let's move forward a bit to Portland because first you set the championship battle. To be real, uh, there's still five drivers mat- mathematically in the championship hunt, right? We've got still, what, over uh, 124, I'm just trying to think. There's, there's a 30 points, right? There's, there's essentially 33 points per race up for grabs. So 132 points when it's all said and done. Now that's if somebody obviously doesn't finish. But right now, Stingray Robin, fifth, not that far out. He is indeed 82 points out of the championship. But if Stingray goes on a run, can win a couple of races, he's not done. So let's just, and I'll say Stingray Rob's the guy that I think is ready to win a race. He didn't have what he, the, the event he wanted at uh, Gateway at Worldwide Technology Raceway, but he certainly has been knocking on the door. A couple of great runs at Mid-Ohio. That could play well for Stingray Rob. He's going to have to win probably the last four races if he wants to win the championship. But suffice it to say, five drivers still in the hunt. Daniel Frost can definitely get the job done. We know he's a race winner. He's P4 in the championship. Parker Thompson's been struggling of late. Didn't have a great weekend at Mid-Ohio. Was okay. Uh, at at Worldwide Technology Raceway on the Oval. They made a mistake in qualifying, both he and Jacob Abel putting sticker tires on. That did not work for qualifying on the Oval. Everyone else going on the scuffs. Temperature was a bit cooler. They weren't able to get enough heat into the tires. So they battled understeer for their two laps on on track for qualifying. Parker, again, is going to have to come out of the gate strong. Again, so the one thing I do go is I go back and look at how the guys did last year in Indy Pro at Portland. Uh, Oliver Askew, Renus VK, and Parker Thompson, P1, P2, and P3 in race number one. Parker was, of course, with, with exclusive autosport that year, so that plays well for Daniel, knowing the car was pretty good. But Parker does have experience in the category there. Only Parker, Stingray Rob, Nikita Lastoskin, and Moises De Lovera. Those are the only four drivers with, with experience at Portland. And then in race number two, it was Malukas as the winner, David Malukas, Renus VK second, winning the championship, and Oliver Askew in third. So all three of those drivers have moved up to Indy Lights. So, you know, you give a little bit of experience uh, advantage to Parker Thompson, but he'll, they'll have to roll out quickly with that, uh, that Able Motorsports machine for him to be able to battle for this championship as well. He's still significantly back, 259 points. So he's about 64 points back. Really comes down now to Rasmus Lint versus Kyle Kirkwood, unless one of those three drivers I just mentioned goes on an absolute tear and essentially sweeps the final four races of the year. Otherwise, we're down to the Swede versus the American. 
Cal Kirkwood knows how to get the job done. These guys ran in USF 2000 last year, and it was Kirkwood who really went on that late run, or pretty much all, all season long, but he was so good near the end of the season as well. The confidence was there. That's where Kirkwood is right now. And that's where I say, going into this event, Rasmuth Lint needs to win, maybe win the first race and turn things upside down. He's got a six-point lead. Rasmuth needs to win at least one of these races, I think. He has to stop the momentum. If he comes into this weekend and can win both races, that changes everything going into Laguna Seca uh, on the third week of September. We're capping off the season. Championship weekend for the Road to Indy alongside the NTT IndyCar Series at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca on September 2021-22. Rasmuth needs to stop the flow of momentum and the flow of confidence for Kyle Kirkwood, because Kyle's going to roll in here with RP Motorsports Racing and be absolutely ready to win two more and take a substantial lead into Laguna. That's, that's just, he's got a role here right now. He's won so many races. It's unbelievable. He's won, what is it? Six of the last seven events now. And I think with the momentum, Kyle's going to just try to steamroll the entire weekend, but I will not take anything away from Rasmuth Lent because he is a talented young driver who could easily win this championship. It's going to be a great fight. That's all I can say for sure. We have a fantastic fight to cap off this year's Road to Indy, Indy Pro 2000 Championship. It's going to be a great one. Some tremendous drivers who have all you know worked their way up through this uh, USF 2000 category. Still don't know which driver is going to be the scholarship winner heading into Indy Lights in 2020. So there's your wrap-up, your Road to Indy Insider breakdown for Indy Pro 2000. Excellent stuff, folks. We'll bring in Nick Yeoman. Well, with uh, Indy Pro 2000 wrapped up, let's move on to the other category that was part of the action at the Bomberito Automotive Group 500 at Worldwide Technology Raceway. Indy Lights, and to help us out here for the first time on the Road to Indy Insider, uh, I have the man himself from the IndyCar Radio Network, the anchor of the Indy Lights broadcast, Mr. Nick Yeoman. Great to have you, Nick. Rob, thanks for, so much for having me on the show, man. It's good to be with you. Yeah, you too, man. It's great to have you with us here. We actually were able to grab a beer at the hotel after the race on Saturday night. That's the first time we've done that. I like that. That was fun. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's a shame that, you know, we're always jet-setting somewhere different. You've got so many duties covering karting, and uh, and, and I'm busy as well. That uh, We don't get to hang out nearly as much as, as we'd like on these race weekends. So uh, it was great being in St. Louis this past weekend. No doubt about it. So we'll get into this first. I'll do as I normally do, kind of give a little overview of the uh, of the race itself, and I'll ask you a couple of, if you want to you know add some input, that works really well. Afterwards, we'll talk some of, about some of the talking points. Uh Coming into this weekend, I think the big thing, Nick, and obviously you'll pr- probably agree with me, was the fact the championship is is kind of starting to go one way. It's starting to lean towards Oliver Askew. He's the guy with the momentum right now. Coming into the race weekend, he does well in qualifying, puts it on the pole. But at the start, bottom part of the racetrack, really not the best place to be because on the colder tires, you're trying to pinch the car around or pinch the car down. We saw guys have trouble. VK running the higher groove able to jet around. So he leads early. Uh, and I think interesting that, and we'll talk about this, Nick, you and I can, can get to the point where uh, ask you really showed a lot of patience because he probably could have fought it. But I think knowing the way the cars were set up, that he was going to be able to go after him later on the race. So out of the out of the gate, VK takes the lead. Oliver Askew slides into second, David Malukas to third, Ryan Norman fourth. Uh, then I believe we had Dalton Kellett followed by Toby Sowery. That was the kind of lineup early on. Um, 
and I'll come to you on this right now, Nick, because the crazy thing was everybody's settling in and we're wondering, hey, maybe is this going to be one of those deals where we just kind of run around for, for 20 or 30 laps? Toby Sowery was working really hard to try to get by Dalton Kellett. And uh, that car, he it just did not like being on the bottom. It did not like having that much steering input uh, coming out of two. And, and he actually looped it around. Very lucky he didn't go in the wall. Yeah, he was very fortunate. And, and he wasn't the only one that you could kind of, you know, watch navigate out of turn two drivers with their hands full. And, and I think we saw in the IndyCar race later that night that, you know, the bottom kind of locked down. It's kind of an old dirt track term. Uh, but it was very tough to move up into a second groove uh, there at, at in St. Louis. And, and Sowery certainly had his hands full. And after he spun early, and, and thankfully he got very lucky, Rob, not making contact yeah. with anything, um, you could tell that that car, the handling just wasn't there on that HMD Motorsports car because after he fell to the back of the field, really wasn't able to make ground uh, back towards the front. But he was looking racy early, and I think that probably spooked him a little bit. But you're right. I mean, it was one of those races where uh, I think a lot of drivers were kind of hanging on throughout the course of the day. Well, you know, lap four, he's on the inside, Kelt's on the outside, and he has that one big moment, the full opposite lock. But uh, using his skills and experience he has, he's able to control the car and, and did a good job. Dropped back into the clutches of Robert McGinnis. Toby then spooled it back up again, went after Dalton, finally is able to get by. And then it was on lap 11 after he got by Dalton Kellett, which he, when he spun. Uh, able to continue on, didn't make any contact with the wall at all. So here we go to a lap 15 restart. Renus Viacan able, able to hold off Oliver Askew. Would have been an, op- an opportunity for Askew to make the move there on a restart, but again, very patient. One of the big things I think everybody knew, or at least he, he knew, that uh, the Hunko's cars had gone for a, a little lighter downforce. They trimmed the cars out a little bit. Better straight line speed, you know, obviously better off the restart but you're going to wear the tires out because you're going to be tossing that thing around a bit, really not having that much downforce. You're not planted as much in the corners and you start working the tires. And that's really what happened. Uh, lap 30, exiting turn two, uh, Renus VK actually got up into the wall. That, got, that kind of caught us all off guard. They tapped the left rear or the right rear rather on the wall coming out of turn number two. And, and that was probably a couple inches from being a really hard hit. It was maybe a glancing blow, but, I think it caught everybody off guard. Uh, I, he was very fortunate. And I think the amazing thing and, and where you have to really tip your cap to Renus VK is, as you said, that happened on lap 30. He led another 22 laps. I mean, certainly <laughs> Oliver Askew yeah. continued and started to claw into that lead. But the fact that Renus was able to hang on to the, that car for uh, another 22 laps and ultimately for the rest of the race after uh, certainly, you know, we, we know these cars are very sensitive. It doesn't take much to bend some A-arms, some toe links, and, and damage these race cars. So, yeah, he got very fortunate. And, uh, and yeah, it was very, very nearly a big one there out of, out of the corner. As you alluded to, 22 laps later, lap 52, Oliver Askew, it was a, a kind of a full lap pass. He made the move on the outside of turn one and two. They went side by side all the way around, of course, one and two. Oliver on the high groove able to pinch Renus down. So Renus is obviously having to get off it a little bit and can't unwind the wheel. That allows Oliver to go all the way down the straightaway, but with the lower downforce and the long straightaway, Renus gets a really good run, dives back down to the bottom of the track, but uh, Oliver obviously showing the experience he's got over the last couple of years in USF 2000 and Indy Pro 2000, just ran you know that middle groove, that nice, easy, relaxed groove around the outside. He ends up taking the lead, and, and at that point, really walks away uh, walks away from, from the pack, but I think I don't think it's so much that the pace he had walked away. I think that, and Renius had said it afterwards uh, in, in our press conference that, you know, once Oliver got by, he knew that all the second was the best he could do. So there was no need for him to really hang it out there at that point. I got P2. 
this is what I've got. Let's just bring it home. Yeah, and certainly, you know, like we talked about with a, a slightly wounded race car and, and the pace that Oliver showed in just, you yeah. know, one or two laps after he made that pass, he had gapped him. You know, we're talking five, six car lengths per lap. So Renus did a smart thing and, and yeah, settled into a pace and kind of cruised for those last 23 laps. It's, it's not the position he wants to be in because the one guy he doesn't want to be behind uh, in this championship, as Oliver asked you, but he did a nice job. Obviously, David Malukas was was charging towards the end of that race, but I think you know Renus did a nice job with with what uh, the, the hand that was dealt to him to to hold on and, and uh, ran a smart race from there on to finish second. Well, I think with Oliver putting on the pole as quick as he was, he was significantly faster in qualifying. The Hunko's team just said, "Listen, we've got to do something." So, what is it? What, what are we going to do? Let's let's. Dial some, dial some of the, the the downforce out. Maybe we'll get lucky and there'll be a couple more yellows that you know our tires will get taken care of and we'll be able to hold off Askew. It didn't play that way, but I like the fact that they rolled the dice and, and went for it for sure. Uh, Askew with the win, VK second. David Malukas, and we're going to talk more about David, obviously, but David Malukas coming home in third, a fantastic run for David, great for his confidence, momentum heading to Portland as well. Ryan Norman last year's winner didn't quite have the pace he had in a 2018, he ends up in the fourth spot. Robert McGinnis rounding out the top five. Askew leaves a Worldwide Technology Raceway with a 52-point lead uh, heading to Portland. And, of course, uh, Nick, just four more races to go, two in Portland and two at Laguna Seca. This uh, It's going to be an interesting championship for sure. Uh, this uh, And, again, the funny thing is, Oliver never wants to say that it's done, right? He's he's just he's not even kind of budging in the term in the fact that I want to finish this championship off before I even think about IndyCar next year. That that's our job to say it's done, isn't it? I mean, right. <laughs> it, uh, yeah. listen, mathematically, certainly anything's possible, but I, I thought this win at Worldwide Technology Raceway was was the one that potentially was going to seal up this championship, and and the way he got it done, as you talked about, just methodical patient I mean after he's catching Renus VK and sees him get into the wall uh to take his time to get around him and then check out and win that race it was uh, it was a championship defining drive I, I really look at it that way so uh yeah I, listen Oliver's gonna say the right things because he's got a really good head on his shoulders he knows that anything's possible in motorsports those mechanical gremlins can creep up at the absolute worst time um but I think you and I are both going to be absolutely shocked uh, if Oliver doesn't claim this championship with two more uh, race weekends to go, yeah, it, and again he'll he, he'll go into Portland trying to win races, of course. But uh, even if you put yourself in the top three, he, he's going to be in a, in a place to get the points he needs to get for sure. But uh, interesting, I think as well. You talk about it being potentially that championship performance. It may actually be one that changes kind of the dynamics of where he's going to sit in silly season for next year in the NTT IndyCar Series because. If he wins the championship, he gets the three races. He's got the scholarship, the Indianapolis 500 attempt, of course. We'll call it an attempt now, not a straight-on deal, because you, uh, just like Pato Award, wasn't able to get in. You still have to get the job done. You don't go straight in. Um, I find it interesting that that this kind of performance, the patience he showed, the streak he's on right now, you know that every IndyCar team owner and, and strategist and, and team manager in the paddock is knows who Oliver Askew is, and they're watching, and he's doing everything that would be needed for them to say, hey, listen, we want this kid full-time. I think it's fantastic, and I think that's the thing that has impressed me the most with, you know, we're going to call it a championship season for Oliver Askew 
that he'll wrap up more than likely in the next month. Uh, He hasn't shown a weakness, Rob. That's the most amazing thing. And we've seen in past Indy Lights champions, you know, look at a Sage Karam who was so strong on the ovals, but maybe lacking just a little bit in the road and street circuit game or, or Spencer Piggott, who was the exact opposite, very strong on road and street circuits. And up until about the last year driving Fred Carpenter racing, didn't necessarily look as comfortable on ovals. Oliver doesn't have a weakness. And and here's the fascinating thing, Rob, as we look to silly season, um, we we certainly hope that Oliver is able to put together a full-time ride, can take that scholarship and and parlay it into a team that wants to put him in a car for a full season. But let's say that it's just a partial season. If you're a team owner, what additional races do you put Oliver Askew behind the wheel of a car for? Certainly the Indianapolis 500, that's the marquee event. That's the one that, uh, that takes the biggest budget. But do you take Oliver Askew to ovals? Do you take him to road and street circuits? Because by and large, this season, he has shown no weaknesses with wins at, at Circuit of the Americas, Mid-Ohio, Toronto, uh, Indianapolis, and, and now in St. Louis. I mean, that certainly runs the gambit in terms of uh, of types of racetracks that we see in, in open wheel racing here in America. It's interesting you say that because that's not something that we've seen anybody do. We've not seen a driver, you know, since the scholarship came out uh, without those limited races do just ovals only. Right. Look at how good Santino Ferrucci has been coming from F2. The guy's sitting fourth in oval points right now, yeah. uh, coming off, off these great oval runs. Is that a place you go? Do you go to ovals instead? No, what, what have we seen in, 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 in the past? St. Petersburg, maybe Barber, but St. Petersburg, the road course race in Indianapolis, and then the 500. That's kind of been the three races guys are looking at. It'd be interesting to see if somebody would say, no, I want to run. Indy 500, I want to run Gateway, and I want to run Texas, or whatever it may be, or Richmond, yeah. wherever we're it's going. Certainly, Michael Andretti, I mean, he's he's down there on pit lane for just about every one of these Indy Lights races. Uh, he's very, very high on this young man, and I, I, I find it really hard to believe, Rob, that he's going to let him venture elsewhere. He's going to somehow keep it in the family. What that means in terms of of Andretti Autosports IndyCar lineup, we'll see. There's a lot of rumors floating around, but yeah. uh, clearly this this kid is just unbelievably talented and and has really cemented himself as the top dog in Indy Lights. And I almost feel bad for Renus VK this year because I, I think by and large, Rob, he has uh, definitely told everyone, hey, I'm at least the second best driver. If Oliver Askew's not running in Indy Lights this year, does Renus VK rack up seven poles and seven race wins? He's he's done a great job. Clearly the second best driver in this series. And uh, hopefully we see both of them in IndyCar very soon. Yeah, it's been a great uh, rivalry. They actually raced against each other in carts before they came into the road to Indy. And of course, battled head to head in USF 2000. Uh, you know, obviously a fantastic run for Renus VK through F2000, but you had Cape Motorsports and Oliver Askew really started to come together after St. Petersburg, and he was able to win there. Oliver stays with Cape Motorsports, didn't quite have what it took in Indy Pro. It ended up being Renus VK with Hunkos. They get the championship. He comes up with the Mazda Soul Red colors for Indy Lights, and now they're back going head to head again. And. Yeah, I, I don't know what you do if you're in Renus VK's camp because do you keep him one more year in Indy Lights because he's still young. You know, he's only I think he's only 17 years of age, maybe 18 now. He's young, uh, and Oliver's 21 or 22. So I don't know. Do you keep him or you know they've are because he's tested already. Fred Carpenter Racing uh, in their Indy car. Does he make a move and, and try to buy a ride somewhere? It's it's odd. It's interesting. Yeah, and speaking of young, I mean, I know you wanted to touch on it, that uh, third-place run for David oh, yeah. Malukas. I mean, how impressive was that this past weekend? Well, he, you know what? I just I made my uh, my Road to Indy Insider picks for star of the race, uh, and he was my star of the race for, for this particular run. I could have easily given it to ask you. Patience, great job, able to get the win. But for me, 
in talking to David before we even he we even raced, we did a Cooper Tire Stage Q and A, and I asked him about how good it felt to be quick. And he had told me earlier that that the speed that they were able to show in the open test, of course, HMD Motorsports, formerly BN, restructuring since the, right at Mid Ohio, uh, John Comiskey now kind of the team manager running the program, Jeff Fickling in there as you know uh, chief engineer. Everything's kind of coming together, and it's a different mindset. It's a different race car. It really is. It's a, it's a different platform because you got some different people in there. But David Malukas, what he told me was about how much that wreck at the Freedom 100 uh, did to him. If you go back and think about that wreck early in the Freedom, he gets together with Chris Wyndham. Hard contact. Wyndham's flying up over top of him for a young kid like like Malukas at just 17. That's a lot to take in. And And Nick, he said straight out, that that wreck has been in the back of his mind every time he's got into the car since. And and who can blame him, to be yeah. honest with you? I mean, 17 to have a wreck that, uh, quite honestly, I know you and I talk about it after the race. It, I mean, it took our breath away uh, because we were both crossing our fingers for the, the health and safety of both of those drivers. So um, I, I think it shows a lot of maturity for him to be as as open as he was with you, talking about yep. and admitting that, hey, yeah, that that kind of got in my head. And, and uh, I think that's the first step to, to moving past it. I think – finishing on the podium at uh, at your next oval event is is the next step as well so uh really impressive run for david malukas and i think you and i are both fascinated not just you know over the final two race weekends and four races for that hmd motorsports team but into 2020 what does that organization look like and what kind of steps can they take because it was very clear that they looked a little bit more competitive at uh, worldwide technology raceways than we had seen for the better part of this summer yeah, if you fan out the resumes of, of Comiskey and Fickling, you're, you know, you're talking about some serious experience. John Comiskey was a mechanic for Penske Racing. Uh, he was a team manager, I believe, for uh, for Chip Ganassi Racing as well. Uh, this guy has done a ton. Of course, Jeff Fickling, uh, his family team back in the day, P1, he was the guy that kind of was the center point of the Carlin uh, introduction to Indy Lights back in 2015. He went with Carlin as well to the uh, the IndyCar program and they moved up uh, back now with, with HMD Motorsports. And I think the amount of knowledge and experience that those two guys have, they're going to be a brand new team. And, and even talking to John Comiskey, he thinks they've, they've brought the team a long way in the last three or four weeks. What they're going to be able to do over the next month and then for the full off-season restructuring as we head to the Chris Griffiths test, all the off-season testing, I think that we're going to have another powerhouse team at HMD. And that means we're going to have four really good teams. We've got Andretti, we've got Hunkos, you've got Bellardi, and you're going to have HMD. And I really believe, and you probably would agree with me, it's either going to be Malukas or it's going to be Toby Sowery. One of these guys is going to win a race potentially before the end of the year. Well, and, and I think we're both keeping our fingers crossed that that driver lineup doesn't change heading into next yeah. season. I mean, with this this organization and and starting up the way they did this year, Malukas and Sowery have both knocked on the doors for race wins. Sowery maybe a little bit closer than Malukas has been, uh, but but David's third place run in St. Louis was fantastic, and I think both of those drivers we agree if they're back for uh, twenty twenty behind the wheel of those cars, it wouldn't shock either one of them if they both pick up race wins and they're right there in championship hunt. Yeah, I totally agree. Toby Sowery, the, the veteran that he is, has been really good for, for David Malukas. And David, David's told me that straight up. But he'll, we talk about that at our, at our Q&As. He'll say straight out that, that to be able to bounce off ideas off somebody like Toby and just the way they work on the car setup, I, I think. And we're hearing rumors there's a good possibility that Toby will be back for a full season with HMD. He's that good for David. They blend really well. And if, you're right. If that team, if that team stays strong, 
uh, I think moving forward, they could definitely be one, like you said, that that are always going to be in the conversation on who's yeah, going to win. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah. What I did like was three different teams on the podium as well. Andretti, yeah, Oliver, I mean, Hunkos, Ray, HMD. Yeah. That's what we like. We like that competitive balance. I mean, certainly Oliver Askew winning the last four races is is stinking up the championship show just a <laughs> bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, to see that that uh, Hunkos Racing is was fast with Renus VK. I mean, I, I think we were both a little worried. As fast as Oliver Askew was in practice and then going out and qualifying, and one of his laps was over 160 miles an hour, I thought, oh, boy, he, he may run away with this thing. So it was nice to see, you know, Renus use that outside line and, and that Hunkos car look strong. And then as we talked about, the, the HMD Motorsports team to, to kind of get, get faster as that race went on. And, and, you know, if that race in St. Louis is another 10 laps, or maybe even less than that, five laps, David Malukas uh, might be challenging Renus VK for second. So you're right. The competitive balance to see uh, three strong teams on the podiums is, is what we like to see in any lights. All right. So that wraps up things essentially here from, from, from the worldwide technology raceway. Any other last minute thoughts, Nick, of what you saw throughout the weekend in the, in the Indy lights program? Oh man, just really excited to go to Portland. Uh, yeah. It was a great weekend. Uh, tip the cap to to Chris Blair and and all the folks at uh, Worldwide Technology Raceway. Awesome for these Indy Lights drivers to race in in front of a big crowd that was filling in. And and I think you and I were blown away again this year with the massive crowd they had for Indianapolis. So a great weekend, a great event, and and that's one that I hope stays on the Indy Car and Indy Lights and uh, an Indy Pro 2000 schedule for many many years to come. Well, and and I think. Everything they every time they come back, they do a little more. You know what I mean? There's just something else that they're doing, whatever it may be. You know, the Bomberito Automotive Group with John Bomberito, we know how proactive they are at trying to promote more people coming to the track. The, the, the tweet that I really liked, and I think it, it's, it's not like it's a huge thing, but it's just really indicative of what Chris Player and the crew are looking to do. And he just said that tweet out saying, hey, guys, you know, you're supposed to be out of the track by 12 o'clock. We know you're all having breakfast. It was a late night last night. You had a fantastic time here. Take your time. Leave when you want. I just thought that was, you know, it's perfect. It, it is. It's fantastic. Those folks clearly get it, whether it's the, you know, the three-wide salute on the IndyCar parade yep. lap or or Lord knows they set off enough bombs and fireworks <laughs> and pyro on the back stretch <laughs> that I think scared everybody in the St. Louis area. But uh, they just, they do it up first class. It, it had that awesome Saturday night short track feel that, uh, that that some of us, especially myself, living in the Midwest, that's what we live for. So, uh, again, tip the cap to everybody there. They've done a fantastic job. And like I said, man, I, I hope we are racing in St. Louis for decades. I love the call of short track because that's what it was. As I, we were walking back after getting our last interviews done for IndyCar Radio. All the people that had come down from the uh, the grandstands to the fence, because, of course, they rolled out the, the, uh, the, the driver introductions trailer, the stage, to do the whole deal like old school, like, you know, it's straight up, like you said, dirt, Saturday night dirt track. They're letting people pour out in the front uh, to be there. And the, the excitement was palpable. It was just that was even, it was the end of the race. It was the end of the experience for so many people, but it was that exclamation point that's going to keep them coming back. Yeah, it's just fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, all right, Portland, uh, quick preview before we let, you, we let you go here. Interesting to look at last year. I just kind of was scrolling through it a little bit, reminding myself, you know, Andretti Autosport was great, of course, with Pato Award and Colton Herta, but Victor Franzoni was on the podium with Hunkos Racing. You move forward to race number two, and both Bellardi cars were on the podium, Aaron Tielitz and Santi Arrutia. Pato winning both of those races, of course, to, to cap off the championship. But uh, there's a lot, you know, the te- all the teams were good there. I'll be interested to see whether or not we have Aaron Tielitz come back for that race. 
Yeah, I mean, here's the two things I'm looking for. First of all, it's it's just the mindset for Oliver Askew and that Andretti Autosport team. Does he go for it? Does he go for a couple more wins to kind of uh, really put the nail in the coffin in this championship, or does he play it safe? And then the second thing, Rob, I'm looking for Dalton Kellett to go viral for a second straight year at Portland. Uh, of course, I mean, that was all over the internet as he tried to avoid a, a big crash there on the opening lap and, and ramped through the, the sandbags, that, which I don't think he knew was there. Uh, but certainly did uh, very shortly. So uh, no, yes. I, I only I only kid. It was a funny moment that Dalton himself was able to laugh about. But can't wait to head to Portland. That uh, that's a cool event, and and certainly we're going to see if Oliver can really put the final touches on this title. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a full lineup of the Road Dandy presented by Cooper Tires. The drivers from USF 2000 will return to the uh, the fray. Uh, Indy Pro 2000. Obviously, we did the full preview or the full report from from uh, Worldwide Technology Raceway talking about an incredible performance. Uh, by Kyle Kirkwood using the chaos of the opening lap to be able to somehow go from 12th to first in about four laps. He he was already to the lead before I had gotten from pre-race on pit lane back back up to the booth. Um, it's an amazing run for Kyle Kirkwood. He's on a roll, but doesn't have the point lead. Rasmus Lint still with the point lead there. That's going to be a super exciting one. Same goes for USF 2000. Braden Eves comes in with the point lead, but both Hunter McElroy and Darren Keene still in the fight. Lots of stuff. And it's not our final race this year. Portland was where we had the finale last year. We head back to Monterey and WeatherTech Laguna Seca at the end of September alongside the NTT IndyCar Series. So there's a lot of great stuff to happen in Portland. It's still one of those places, maybe not for Indy Lights, but most definitely for, for USF 2000 and Indy Pro, these championships. It's all going to come down to how every driver performs for the final four races. Nick Yeoman, I appreciate you joining me, my friend. Rob, good as always, my friend. We'll see you in Portland. Again, folks, Nick Yeoman, the anchor of the Indy Lights broadcast on the Advanced Auto Parts IndyCar Radio Network. Great to have him with us here. Episode number 23 of the Road to Indy Insider is done. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, follow all of the Road to Indy action on the Road to Indy TV app. You can also get it on roadtoindy.tv. And as always, uh, Indy Lights and IndyCar on the IndyCar Radio Network. I believe it's Sirius uh, XM 98 for the IndyCar race at Portland. You always go to to, uh, IndyCarRadio.com to find out exactly where it is, or you can, of course, listen on the Race Control app on IndyCar.com. Again, thanks to Nick Yoma for joining us, folks. My name's Rob Howden. Bye for now.